If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Cricket has long crafted an image of itself as a sport of etiquette and fair play. But in his new book, Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket, Duncan Stone argues that the truth is somewhat different. In conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Duncan tells the story of a sport that he contends has long been riven by elitism. It's a tale that takes in the rise of the gentleman amateur, political controversies and the racism scandal that's recently engulfed Yorkshire County Cricket Club. Duncan, in your your new book... You argue that English cricket was, and to a a large extent, still is an elitist sport. You you also contend that key stakeholders in the sport, everyone from the cricket authorities to historians of the game, have attempted to obscure this elitism by sort of crafting a romanticised image of a chivalrous and respectable pastime that's available to all. Now, why do you think it's important to to challenge this image? When you sustain a a myopic or inherently dishonest view of the past, which the orthodox history of cricket is, it's not only... It not only serves the interests of the people who created that image, uh, you know, it's divisive and ultimately an act of self-harm and much like British society at the moment, um, which isn't doing the best, uh, English cricket is in what I would call an advanced state of cultural decay. Um, Its own image, you know, this nebulous spirit of cricket, um, which is nothing but a corporate delusion uh, when you look at the history of match-fixing and uh, gambling and and obviously recent things such as uh, the racism and the classism uh, that has, you know, gone through the game's entire history, um, it's actually getting to a point uh, where it's putting people off the game. So English cricket's image, its orthodox history, which is a very top-down orthodoxy, has alienated the overwhelming majority of people in this country who would be either interested in the game or even take part in the game. Now, you begin the first chapter of the book by describing a game of cricket between Tilford CC and their close uh, neighbour, the Bourne CC, in rural Surrey back in 1936. Now, you point out that this game was unusual purely because it was a league match. And for much of the 20th century, league cricket was kind of frowned upon in the south of England, whereas in the, the Midlands and the north, it was obviously an integral part of the framework of the game. Why were those who ran cricket in the south so adverse to league cricket? So essentially, um, 
the cricket elites, and I would argue the elites of this country more broadly, if there's one thing that they detest, it's meritocracy. And what essentially the, the culture of recreational cricket in England as a whole prior to the First World War was essentially the same. Once uh, the FA Cup had inaugurated knockout cup competitions and the Football League had done much the same for leagues, uh, football and cricket, north or south, was played according to those cultural parameters. But what the people, the elites in the south, much like the elites who ran the rugby football union, realised is that meritocratic competition means that they're going to lose on occasion to working class people. So what they did in rugby, obviously, they split it in two. They refused the working class men broken time payments, which wasn't even full-time professionalism. That was just compensation for time lost at work rather than being paid specifically to play rugby. Uh, in the South, where white-collar workers, uh, obviously suburban areas, uh, it was less industrial. Uh, an organisation called the Club Cricket Conference uh, decided they were going to ban competition. And this was specifically to create uh, a situation where middle-class cricketers got to choose who they played against. So if you play in a cup or a league, you don't get to choose your opposition. But if you ban cups and leagues, then the elites, uh, you know, in sort of suburbanised villages such as Cranley, just up the road from me here in Surrey, uh, they were able to basically pick and choose who they played against. So in villages, to take Cranley as the example, uh, before the First World War, Cranley Cricket Club would have represented the community as a whole, much like cricket clubs throughout the country. What happened during the interwar period, after the hiatus of the First World War, is that the local middle classes essentially took over Cranley Cricket Club, forced the formation of a separate working men's team within the village, and this was very common throughout the South, uh, and then they coveted visits from, you know, elite wandering sides, uh, you know, the MCC, uh, and people who were like them. So the split that occurred in rugby happened in recreational cricket all the way down to the grassroots level in villages throughout the suburban south. So was playing competitive cricket in some way seen as, as vulgar? Um, well, it was by, you know... The, the sort of the middle classes, yes, or, or that at least was what they had to argue. If, if they were going to go through with this method of, of banning competitive sport, then they had to have a reason. You know, it, it was like uh, banning professionalism. Well, they're playing sport for all the wrong reasons. You know, we've got private incomes, therefore we can afford to play sport as amateurs uh, for the love of the the sport, whatever it is, cricket or otherwise. Um, but it certainly wasn't vulgar for the majority of people who played sport of any, you know, form because being competitive 
is an integral part of sport. If if it's if it's not competitive, if you look at the dictionary definition, arguably it ceases to be a sport. Now, why has cricket proved such a an attractive proposition to the elites, and especially so in the in the eighteenth and nineteenth century? When why did they attach themselves to cricket in a way that they didn't attach themselves to, say, football? I think it had the longevity, you know, it had the history sort of in place, you know, as, you know, what we would recognise today as football or soccer, um, that was a, the new kid on the block, really. Uh, you know, and it was incomparable to, the, like, the mob football that had obviously been played for centuries. Uh, cricket had been played for centuries, but it was, you know, if you, if we had a time machine and went back to sort of late the late 1600s, it would have been recognisable. We'd have known what it was. Um, and, of course, you had members of the royal family and the landed classes had played it, obviously, because they got to gamble enormous sums of money on it, uh, gambling being, a, as well as formal competitions, an integral part of its growth. So yes, royalty had played, uh, the aristocracy had played, and cricket was the first sport in the world to be literalised, if, if that's it, or, or, or you know, set out in ideological terms in writing. And you know, you had the Reverend Pycroft in 1851, forty years before the first official county championship, already making claims that cricket was you know, the archetypal English game. Uh, so, of course, even then it had ideological value and they saw it, it's hard to believe today, but even then they were looking back to an idealised rural past, you know, against this effect Europeanised present. It's weird how history repeats itself, isn't it? Um, but yes, it, it, had, it had everything about old England, uh, you know, ruralism that was being swept away by industrial capitalism. So right from the get-go, it was look. It was a nostalgic, backward-looking, conservative sport, which of course su- suited their purposes uh, very well. Would you argue that that attitude has held the sport back? I mean, is that one of the the reasons why football is supplanted cricket is is a national game? Yeah, I think well. The thing that football had an advantage, uh, it was obviously the brevity of the sport, the comparative simplicity of the sport, but more importantly, I think it's meritocratic organisation. So football was always going to usurp cricket as long as it was run uh, in the interests of, uh, you know, a minority of elites. And that became then you know, a minority of subscribers or members of the county clubs, all which were private members clubs. So, yes, I think football inevitably was going to take over. And, yes, it has damaged cricket's popularity. Uh, In fact, my book is, is littered with examples where the powers that be in cricket, whether it's the MCC, the Test and County Cricket Board, or the ECB have made decisions consciously designed to make the game less popular. So, you know, it's been it's been the game has been mismanaged badly 
for the last century and a half. Can you give me um, an example of that, please, of the, the way in which they've done that? Well, in the old days of, you know, the gentleman amateur, when the MCC, you know, a private members club that wouldn't allow women in till the 20th century, uh, they basically obviously had the amateur professional distinction. So that subjugated uh, working class participation as players. But then there was a lot of their refusal to reorganise the county championship along lines that would be recognisable as a league also undermined its popularity. So whereas the Football League, you know, you're going to play everybody twice and at the end of the season you've got... Promotion, relegation. Yeah. It wasn't even into even into the 1960s when we still had the amateur professional distinction, county cricket clubs would play different numbers of matches. I mean, how do you work out who's actually the best? But there was also a lot of talk... Uh, around the 1920s and and before, actually, in the late 19th century, where they started to realise that uh, the popularity of cricket meant you had all these working-class people turning up, and there were people basically claiming that, well, we should double the entrance fees to stop them coming. So it was as blatant as that. In the modern era, where all that amateurism and fear of... um, you know, rampant commercialism has been uh, unceremoniously jettisoned for avaricious exploitation. Unfortunately, the results are the same because by, you know, uh, taking uh, domestic or international cricket off free-to-air television, once again meant the game was being run in the interest of a minority of subscribers. But rather than the subscribers or the members of county cricket clubs, it was now the subscribers to Sky. So in three short years between Ashes series, when Channel 4 had it, uh, the Sky only broadcast Ashes that followed that. Uh, Four million viewers had been disenfranchised in in three years. So... Whether it's by design, as it definitely was uh, in the amateur days, or by perhaps accident, the results are the same. Now, I wonder if I could um, uh, return to the gentleman amateur who who, uh, you mentioned just a few minutes ago. I mean, as you point out in the book, um, the gentleman amateur's heyday was in the so-called golden age of cricket from 1890 to 1914. And that they numbered some of the most famous names in the history of cricket, including, I believe, W.G. Grace. I mean, how would you say the gentleman amateur shaped cricket's trajectory in the early 20th century? I would say the gentleman amateur in cricket and in British society beyond uh, really hindered progress. What the gentleman amateur was doing was essentially what we need to understand about gen- many of the gentlemen amateurs, uh, W.G. Grace and people like C.B. Fry were the exception to the rule. They were actually incredibly talented cricketers. But what we need to appreciate is that a lot of the gentlemen amateurs that were playing first-class cricket were pretty average. Uh, so what they were doing was blocking the progression of working-class talent, which we still see today. Um, The structures of cricket 
the decisions that were being made at the top that allowed these men the privilege to captain uh, all sorts of counties invariably meant that an arguably more talented working-class player was left out in the cold. And that's largely where, you know, the leagues that persisted in the Midlands and the North filled the gap. And for a very long period of time, the semi-professional leagues in the Midlands and the North were a distinct threat to the county championship simply because it was a better product. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. No wonder the game is still run in the interests of essentially white middle-class men because white middle-class men have always run the game and controlled its image. Now, to move forward a little bit, in, in the chapter entitled The Song Remains the Same, you talk about the controversy surrounding the, the admission of Basil Dolivera, a South African cricketer of Portuguese and Indian descent, from England's 68-69 tour of South Africa. How much of a, of, of a cool celebre was that back in the late 60s? Oh, it was, it was, it was uh, I mean, it's very difficult. I, I was only born in '69, so I, I wouldn't know personally. <laughs> but from, but from, but you can tell, you know, from Peter O'Bourne's excellent book uh, uh, and what I looked at, um, it it was it was massive. And obviously, from that, we had you know the anti-apartheid movement really gained a lot of traction in this country. Uh, and obviously, Peter Hayne and the Stop the Seventy tour uh, that emerged subsequently uh, re- really sort of got got the whole anti-apartheid movement uh, going. And arguably, attacking sport was its greatest success. It, that was the way in, because you weren't going to make too many inroads, you know, attacking, boycotting businesses or something like that. So I guess that was a, an instant and very effective way of grabbing the, the wider public's attention to, to the cause. Certainly. I mean, in terms of grabbing the attention of, you know, people in power, there was obviously a lot of overlap in you know between the political class and and the people at the at the top of English cricket, uh, and indeed you know the negotiations that went on, uh, you know, directly involved prime ministers, uh, or at least ex prime ministers in the case of the uh, the English side. So while this was going on, you had um, thousands of South Asian and um, West Indian people seeking to play cricket. In England, what kind of obstacles did did they face in the in the sixties and seventies? Yeah, post war migration is very interesting, and it's you know certainly one of my favourite bits of the book. Um, I think in the early days, the obstacles weren't as big as we might assume. There seems to be evidence that uh, early migrants particularly if, obviously, if they were very talented players, uh, were invariably made welcome. I'd imagine that in the early days there'd have been a slight novelty factor. Um, And it was only when sort of migration numbers obviously started rising and then the economy started dipping that, you know, it's the classic, you know, us and them. Uh, But the barriers that they would have 
come up against, other than just out-and-out racism, uh, was certainly a lack of facilities, uh, you know, whether grounds were available uh, to them in particular was was difficult. Some of some my interviewees really relied on a lot of help from leagues to give them an in with local councils or, or even universities. Um, but unfortunately, the structures that had been erected originally maybe to keep out working-class players, once leagues had become universal again by the 1970s, I think the white cricket community invariably then put the barriers up against, you know, black and South Asian players. So a lot of the leagues are justifying the exclusion of South Asian or ethnic minority clubs in general on the basis of their facilities. Because if if you're reliant on local councils, particularly in an era of austerity, um, you know, you're not going to, despite the fact lots of clubs are collapsing, they're still not allowing these minority clubs to replace them on the basis of their facilities. So it's, so it's, it's circumstantial, but you know, we, there, again, there's evidence in the book where Giles Clark, uh, cites that as an excuse for the exclusion of Waltham cricket club. Um, when really you've got an incredibly talented, uh, group of South Asian players, wouldn't it be his, his job to actually encourage them rather than just dismiss them? Uh, but there was one realm of cricket where actually, you know, white, black, South Asian uh, cricketers mixed really well, and that was workplace cricket. Uh, and you may well be coming on to that. But um, I would argue that, um, you know, the barriers were, you know, the class and the race issue are two sides of the same coin. Unfortunately, there's a much higher proportion of ethnic minorities in this country that live in comparative poverty compared to the white population. So they're the ones that are relying on municipal grounds. So as much as I argue overall in the book that social class is the biggest factor in whether you progress or participate in cricket, obviously it is most visible with, in particular, the South Asian community. You also say, don't you, that... um especially, say, from the, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of council facilities and sports grounds were actually shut down. I mean, what kind of effect did that have on the grassroots game? Well, it, I, we don't have any figures, unfortunately. Um, but it must have been devastating. You know, um, post-1979, you know, Thatcherite uh, socioeconomic policies, you know, in, especially... Deindustrialization uh, and privatization led to essentially the end of workplace sport. Um, so that you know, uh, racial melting pot, for the want of a better term, that was workplace cricket uh, or workplace football, whatever. Uh, obviously, you had a lot of nationalized industries with strong trade unions, such as mining, etc., were attacked and ultimately closed down you had uh what had been family-owned businesses uh, bought up by multinational corporations and then when you've done away with the keynesian sort of economic policies and you know the post-war consensus 
then you've got this hard hardwired sort of neoliberal approach where it's profit before people you've got all these incredibly valuable but unprofitable um uh, sports grounds which all get sold off then of course you've got regulation 909 in 1981 which allowed local authorities to sell off uh, any uh, school playing fields or recreation fields that were deemed quote surplus to requirements well that's such an ambiguous term there's almost nothing stopping it happening and we lost over 10,000 i think between 1981 and 1997. So you factor in the loss of industrial grounds, many of which hosted first-class cricket matches. I mean, we're talking seriously good facilities and and a seriously good standard of cricket, by the way. Um, you know, you add, you factor in both of those. Uh, you know, the, the, the losses are devastating. Sure. So tell us a bit more about workplace cricket, because as, as you know, in the book, that was a... a a real powerhouse of the game, wasn't it, for for uh, a couple of decades? Was it the sixties and seventies? Uh, it's difficult to know when when workplace sport peaked, but uh, you know, having been involved in workplace sport myself, I, I used to work at Surrey Police, and you know, there was many a time I was told by a senior officer to go home and get me boots. You know, you're playing cricket against uh, the Garda to, later. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's difficult to know when it when it peaked in terms of you know the quality of play and things like that, and the numbers competing. Uh, but certainly the 60s, 70s, and eighties would have been you know halcyon days for you know for workplace sport and workplace welfare more generally. I mean you know they're playing other sports, doing other activities, and you had a more sort of family-owned mentality rather than, uh, you know, right, most of the grindstone, you know, any profit here. I think certainly the 70s appear to have been uh, very good. I, that's the era that I talk about in the book uh, in, in relation to um, Luton, certainly. You mentioned Luton, and there was a, a really successful club in Luton, wasn't there? Uh, Luton United, yeah, and there was Luton Indians as well who seemed from what I can gather from my research, you know, they, they just seem to monopolise um, uh, local competitions. Uh, and again, this was all workplace sport where you'd have had all sorts of weird and wonderful industries competing, you know, with or and against each other. Uh, and obviously General Motors would have been one of the, one of the main ones uh, in Luton, uh, what we would call Vauxhall. Um and of course, even within large companies like that, you would have had inter-department competitions. Uh, so again, going back to my personal experience at Surrey Police, you know, we Surrey Police would play whoever, but we had an inter-sort of department or inter-nick uh, competition called the Sand Cup. So I'd play for headquarters against you know Dorkin Nick or whoever it was. And again, another aspect of that is um is that it was a good way for certain industries like the police to go out into the community now it's impossible to talk, to discuss this topic without mentioning the racism scandal that's engulfed yorkshire county cricket club and mm. english cricket more generally following the allegations made by azim rafiq now, does your research does the research you conducted for your 
book, did it give you an indication of of how the game kind of arrived at a crisis in which it currently finds itself? Yes and no. Yes, it was pretty pretty obvious that you know racism, you know, is is rampant. Whether whether it's over individual racism that you know Azim Rafiq's testimony harrowingly revealed, or structural, you know, the exclusion of South Asians uh, on the basis of their facilities, for instance. It's a, a situation that's just been waiting to happen. But it wouldn't have happened because, let's be honest, we, we've been here before. But it wouldn't have got to this point were it not for Azim Rafiq's fortitude because what he's done now, he's opened a door, an opportunity for cricket to truly lead the way in terms of getting to the bottom of this issue. Now, you can wear, you know, you can wear, it's currently rainbow laces, isn't it, in the Premier League at the moment, and you can wear T-shirts and you can put posters on the wall and, and you can wear laces and, and all this guff, but it's meaningless, it's hollow, it's, it's PR. What we need is fundamental cultural change. And the only way you're going to get to that is if we actually change the people running the game, in my opinion. And, you know, we the game, no wonder the game is still run in the interests of essentially white middle-class men because white middle-class men have always run the game and controlled its image. So I think Azim Rafiq has done more than highlight racism. He's, he's really opened uh, uh, or at least presented an opportunity for us to address the elitism that uh, colours cricket in England. Now, I want to now turn to your final chapter where you document how, in 1999, English cricket hit something of a low point uh, (laughs) (laughs) on the pitch when uh, the team got ejected from its own World Cup. I think even before his official anthem had been released as a single. (laughs) And also then slumped to the bottom of the unofficial test rankings following defeat in a series to New Zealand. Now, since there has been numerous attempts to resuscitate the game, um, both at a sort of community level and at a national level, and also attempts to encourage people of all backgrounds into the game, and how would you rate those attempts over the past 20 years? Uh, for... A two-two. It <laughs> 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 so could do better then. Yeah, uh, it so. could do an awful lot better, but it seems to me that you know, to take the hundred as an example, a lot of the decisions that the people at the top of English cricket make superficially are, you know, say, oh well, you know, we do the hundred, it's gonna, it's gonna attract loads of a new, new audience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, superficially, that's great, isn't it? Uh, But if you're alienating the existing uh, supporters, that's a really bad idea. Uh, So a lot, and the reason I think that they introduced the 100 is simply because they're still smarting from the fact that they forgot to copyright or retain the rights to 2020. 
So they're not making any money out of it. So in order, would you give them some credit for C twenty though? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. it's brilliant. I mean, I have to admit, uh, I remember it being uh, introduced, and I thought, what a dreadful idea. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist myself, but um, I've done a bit more research since then, so uh, I'm I'm a jaded cynic. Uh, But yeah, I think I think uh, 2020 was magnificent, and it and it really. And it really boosted interest in the game. And as much as traditionalists like me in my old mindset would have thought, Ugh, well, that's that's not proper cricket. Well, actually, uh, you know, the record attend- attendances that the, the T20 Blast achieved uh, before the pandemic uh, speak otherwise. Uh, but it would, it would seem to me that, uh, yeah, English cricket, the people who run it, superficially make decisions that appear to want to make the game more popular and everything like that. But I would argue that they make these decisions for entirely the wrong reasons. Like, so you could argue that the hundred is a good idea because it will attract a new audience. But if they're introducing the hundred and throwing an awful lot of money at it, simply because they feel that they've missed out on the 2020 jamboree, which is now all about the IPL, of course, the Indian Premier League, um, then that's, you know, if you're making decisions for the wrong reasons, then they're not going to work. We need we need more authenticity and actually making decisions that are good for the game, not for the ECB's bank balance. That was Duncan Stone. Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket is published by Repeater. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.